Hello everyone, welcome to the Bootstrap Founder Podcast. My name is Avid Kahl and I talk about how you can start, run and sell a bootstrap business. This episode is called Limiting Beliefs. Let's get started. Throughout most of the last two weeks, I've been working on a new software project. It's called Permanent Link and it's a SaaS tool for authors. When I published my book Zero to Sold, I ran into one particularly annoying issue. After the book was out, many links that I had put into the book started breaking. Some blogs that I linked to moved, some domains stopped working. It was a nightmare. Like readers started complaining that links didn't work and they didn't complain to me. They reported it to Amazon. And within a few weeks, the book was marked as containing errors with a big message on the actual sales page of the book. And I had to scramble to update the Kindle version with corrected links. I did that. Then a week later, the same thing happened again. And I removed most of the links from the book just to have it dealt with. And that's not right, right? Links should work within a book, which is why I built a little prototype around that. So what the project does, it allows authors to create links that will still be reachable when the original link rots away. I derived the solution after chatting with a few authors who resorted to building their own custom link redirection system on their own blogs, just to be able to avoid getting those kind of complaints. And just like we did with Feedback Panda a few years ago, I dug into what people had already built to solve this issue and made it significantly easier. And this audience-first approach, this time around again, really helped me to understand the core issue, which was link rot. At least that's what it's called when links stop working. And how particularly non-technical authors don't get much help with that at this moment. Here's just the basic functionality so you know what I'm talking about um, of the prototype that I built. Once you create a permanent link, the system that I've set up will forward any requests to the original link that you want to link to, right? Let's imagine you want to link to google.com, which you probably don't need to uh, reroute, but just imagine you would. So you would build a permanent link slash um, google slash website and if you went there, it would automatically forward you to google.com. And at the same time, it will start monitoring that original link. And once it stops working, it will redirect to an archived version or a custom link, if the author prefers that. Right? Archived version would be archive.org, the, the Wayback Machine, or any custom link that you can put into the system. And that's the pretty much the whole project. That's as simple as that. And while working on this prototype for Permanent Link, I ran into an old friend of mine, so to say. Uh, the more I worked on the project, a thought grew louder. It's not good enough yet. I need more time. That was the thought. And after falling prey to that and building a few things into the project that I really didn't need just yet, I stopped to reflect on where this thought had come from. I remembered how this thought has been following me for the last decade. It's always been there whenever I built something. In many projects, I reached a point where the initial prototype was more than enough to show people what it was about. And yet, I struggled to share it with the world. So where does this come from? And why would my mind hold such a limiting belief? And maybe more importantly, how could I fight it? I think it starts with our sense of identity. We see our projects and our products as an extension of ourselves. If they fail we fail. And when we think um, that we are getting applause for our work, and that is admiration for ourselves, we conflate the inputs with the outputs. We are what we put into the work, not what comes out of it. 
Yet as technical founders in particular, we've been trained to see products and solutions everywhere. And more often than not, our worth, both our self-worth and what we are worth to other people, is determined by the things we produce, not the strategies we follow to actually create them. And we have this inherent tendency to see a product that could be more complete as a better version of the product. But prototypes are not meant to be complete. They're not meant to be flawlessly executed marvels of engineering, right? The minimum viable product is supposed to validate and not to stick around. It's something that we build not to be used, but to give us insights into what we should be building later. And our fear of failure is at odds with this approach. Deep down, the intent and our emotional state are conflicting when it comes to MVPs. And I looked into myself and I think this is my personal psychological breakdown. Consciously, we want to build something that has a high chance of being wrong. That's the whole point, right? If the MVP can invalidate our idea quickly, then we save precious time that we would have wasted on building something bigger. We want the MVP to break intentionally as quickly as possible. But subconsciously, we want everything we produce to be well-received. Our animal brain, or whatever you call it, considers any discrepancy between our expectations and the reality as a fault of ourselves, right? People didn't like the thing I envisioned. Something must be wrong with me. We have a hard time accepting that our perception is biased. We want the MVP to be the perfect version of our imagined product or service. What we want it to be a validation for an idea on a conscious level, we want to be a validation of ourselves subconsciously. And here's how I entangled or untangled this conflict for myself. I thought about who this is really about. And it turned out not to be about me at all. Because perfectionism is really not about you. It's about how you feel you're being perceived by others. The more you think your life is impacted by the judgment of other people, the more you'll struggle with your work. And the worst part is that most people really don't care. Remember that one weird, awkward situation recently where you said something strange in a conversation to a friend or a family member and thought about it for the rest of the week? Well, the person you were talking to probably didn't even notice. The only person who cares about the embarrassment is you. And I'm not really saying you should completely ignore other people. Just really don't lose yourself in all of this. While I think it's important to cater to your audience and build a product that's truly needed by them, the person that makes the solution, that makes it happen, makes it a reality, is you. And like anything else in life, that is a process and a journey, right? It's a multi-step approach, something to iterate over. And when you pick up a new hobby or a new sport, do you expect to be an expert in the subject immediately? Obviously not, right? You'll become knowledgeable by exposing yourself to the craft, by practicing, by repetition. And creativity isn't something you can train for. It's a process of discovery and experimentation. And by regarding your product as it is right now, um, as yet another iteration among many, a step among many, you can internalize that it's not a representation of you. It's not your identity, but it's just really a sign of your current effort. It's a snapshot of what you know right now, made manifest in a good enough product to learn more, to build something better later. So by reframing the MVP into a learning tool, you can trick your brain into disassociating itself with the product. And it will 
turn from an extension of yourself into a tool of curiosity and learning. But you have to want it to be that, right? As this is easier said than done, consider writing down a couple of questions that you want your MVP to provide answers to. By having a list of research questions, your mind will come to understand that it's truly just a knowledge-gathering instrument. This will also allow you to make changes to your MVP that can more readily provide answers to your questions, or at least data from which those answers could be derived. And that is what the current version of PermanentLink is for me. It's not the final product. It's a simplified version of what PermanentLink might be in the future, and it's ready to be tested and iterated on, maybe scrapped if it doesn't work. The project is not an extension of myself. It's the result of a need that I saw many fellow authors struggling with. It's an opportunity to learn more, and that's the best MVP it can be. So I think I'll be sharing my progress with this project on this podcast in the future. Today, I want to start, and I want to talk about the scope of what I did, what I conceptualized, and what I built over the last week, and why I chose to include some things and not build others. First off, I decided to start in a niche. I will build this tool into something really usable to serve all kinds of authors who struggle with ebooks and the links running away in there. But that is my initial niche, right? It's authors who publish ebooks with lots of links. And most of these authors will write nonfiction, and many of them will be technical enough to understand that this could be solved with self-hosted redirection. But I also learned from talking to people that it's just not fun to do this. Nobody wants to have their personal website be responsible for all the links and all of their books to work forever, right? Most writers might not even have a personal website, but only be on social media. And many of them host their books on Amazon for just that reason. They don't want to have to host it themselves and sell it themselves. They want to have a stable platform to do the work for them. And having built many platforms in the past, <laughs> most of them stable, um, I know that how to build a stable service. Right? It, I trust that I can build something that is at least as stable as some wobbly WordPress installation with some redirection plugin installed. Um, I chose to use the Elixir language and the Phoenix framework for this project again because it's the toolkit I know best. And it's also a highly performance system. And let's be honest, the thing I'm building is a link forwarding tool. There's no computationally intensive work like video transforms or number crunching. It's just really forwarding stuff. It's a database lookup and a redirect. So Phoenix, the framework, was perfect for that. It responds to requests in microseconds if you have good caching logic, which is not hard to build. And it's super easy to maintain. I, I mean, Feedback Panda, the, the tool that I sold uh, in 2019 was built on the exact same stack and it was extremely maintainable and highly performant. What I really wanted in this project from the beginning, which was a learning of the previous projects that it was part of, was as few dependencies to the core functionality at least as possible. Other than hosting and a database, I wanted zero external dependencies that could break the product. Feedback Panda had a couple of those things that were external dependencies that could break the product and they were a nightmare to manage. So with the exception of Stripe for collecting payments, permanent link is completely self-contained. I'll eventually work a few more caching layers into the system, like um, on, on Cloudflare and on, on with edge workers maybe, just making sure that the system can stay up even 
it winds down. But the MVP right now has no external dependencies that could break the system if uh, if they were to go down. Like any external service, like hosting something externally, like pictures or videos or some stuff like that. Nothing. It's really just an application that's connected to a database. And the goal is to even be able to have the database to be an optional part of the infrastructure, right? To have caching layers that work so well that the database could be down for hours and the system would still work, which is not that hard to build. But that's future stuff. And that's why I'm saying, right? I could build all of this now, but I don't need to. Um, This kind of infrastructure performance optimization is nice when you have paying customers that need it. Right now, I have zero paying customers. So... I will not need this. I use Tailwind, Tailwind CSS, and Tailwind UI to quickly prototype the interface for the product. And purchasing Tailwind UI has been a very good choice. Can only recommend this. It took me less than a day total to build the interface of both the product and the landing page. It took me longer to integrate sending notification emails than it took me to build a beautiful interface. It's absolutely worth it. And... Talking about stuff being worth something, I believe that any MVP should come with an option for the customer to spend money on your business. Purchase is the ultimate validation. It doesn't get more real than putting money where your mouth is. If a customer buys, they make very clear that there's something valuable here. So I needed them to be able to purchase something, right? to have the option. And uh, as I already said, I'm using Stripe, but... This time around, I'm using Stripe Checkout, which has proven to be amazing. For Feedback Panda, I used an embedded solution, and I had to deal with a lot of tokens being sent back and forth to my server. And uh, when this PSD banking regulation hit Europe back in 2019, I had to scramble to update the system to support new features because all of a sudden you needed these payment intents and um, 3D secure and whatever. Um this time around, I picked Stripe's hosted solution because when something needs to be updated, they'll be the ones that have to deal with it. It took me a mere three hours to integrate this into my system with all the front end, back end, and testing work needed. It's uh, very fast. It took me longer to actually implement password reset than it did to implement Stripe. So permanent link can now be purchased. Let's just see who will. And uh, I guess this is a good time to talk about pricing as well. I had a hard time with that. And I think every founder has a hard time with this. The The last product that I sold was for $15 a month and it was a subscription for Feedback Panda, right? So that, that's kind of the, the number that I'm comfortable with. And that already was the expensive version of the product. Before that, it was at 10 bucks a month. And initially we had sold it for five bucks a month. So 15 was already three times what we initially charged. And a pro- that was a product that people would use every day to make money or to be able to save time to work more other jobs and make money like that. And here I am building a service that if things go well, people don't have to touch for months or even years. Right? It still solves this critical problem, but it's more of an infrastructure investment than a productivity tool for the customer. So it's a different service, a different product than what I previously sold. And to put it into this metaphorical term, it's not a painkiller, it's not even a vitamin, it's health insurance. And it's still an expert tool solving a business problem. So there has to be a budget and people have that. But the pain is not something that can be immediately identified. Links start rotting over time, not right now. And the cost of the product needs to reflect that. And knowing that my audience is mostly professional, professional authors who write about current topics or interesting technologies, 
I know that they have a budget for professional tools, and authors already understand that the royalties are long-term expectations as well. So having something that is like an insurance, conceptually, is not going to bother them as much because they know that this is a long-term project. They will make money for years. So the better the book holds up, the more money they make. And that justifies a budget for tools that help with that. And, and, you know, authors, they have to buy a lot of things like writing tools, authoring tools, publishing tools, syndication tools, and I guess maintenance tools like Permanentlink as well. With more and more books being distributed digitally, my initial niche will grow naturally. At least that's what I assume. And like I said, it's an insurance, which is why I picked the fairly low price of 25 bucks a month to start. Right now, I only have this one subscription package, full access to everything for 25 bucks a month. Of course, this will change in the future. I'll add a yearly option and a few tiers once I start building non-core functionality because I see a lot of very interesting features um, for this tool, a lot of analytics and book insights and uh, link acceptance, link click kind of stuff. But that's future talk. Right now, it's an MVP with just the core functionality of forwarding one link to a destination, monitoring it, and switching the link if the original destination goes down. I have this long list of things I might build, but I won't do that just yet because it's time to actually confront the reality out there. And what I have to do is actually leave the building, metaphorically, and talk to the people who I know have this problem. Get them signed up, get them talking to me, getting into a conversation. And that's what's on my list for this week and for the near future. And this is both a side project and an actual business, right? I'm still writing every week for the blog and the newsletter, and I'm working on my new book, Audience First. Um, so this is kind of a side business, but it's a side business and a side business project that's also a guinea pig and a laboratory for that book and for my consulting and for my mentoring and stuff that I'm doing. And I pl- applying my own advice will make the will both make the book and the business more reflected, I think. And if it succeeds, like the business, I guess, the, the book likely will, because it's an audience first book. Like everybody wants the stuff to succeed that they are part of. But if Permanently succeeds, that's awesome. And if it fails, it's also great. It's a great way of working through the shortcomings of what I'm writing about. So it's a nice parallel process. And having said that, I think I'm just going to get right back to it. And I'll talk to you more about this business and the things that I come across, the little struggles, the little problems next week. So thank you for listening to the Bootstrap Founder podcast today. You can find me on Twitter at Avid Kahl, A-R-V-I-D-K-A-H-L. And you can check out the blog at thebootstrapfounder.com. You can find my book, Zero to Sold, at zerotosoldbook.com. If you have any questions about this episode and the contents, like my business or my books, reach out on Twitter or send an email to arvid at thebootstrapfounder.com. If you want to support me in the Bootstrap Founder podcast, please leave a rating and a review by going to ratethispodcast.com slash founder. It'll help other founders and founders to be find this podcast and learn more about starting, running, and selling their bootstrap businesses. Thank you very much for listening and have a wonderful day. Bye-bye.